Moeller, and this is Anatomy of Change, a podcast series about the struggle and connection in making courageous change in the systems and structures that thread our lives. In this bonus episode, I share the outtakes of my conversation with Romeo as he shares his experience under Ceausescu's regime before the fall, the sides of communism, and his personal projections of what may happen to our American two-party system and the future of Trumpism. When I travel, I find some of the most interesting people to strike up a conversation with as taxi drivers to get the latest or the history of government and politics. It was no different when I was traveling in Bucharest. I found myself intrigued about the stories of secret police, disappearances, and government officials tied to Ceausescu. On December 17th of 1989, he ordered military forces to open fire on demonstrators, causing deaths and injuries. When it became known that he was responsible for the order, civil unrest and rioting grew across Romania and reached Bucharest. This period is known as the Romanian Revolution. He tried to flee with his wife Elena and was captured, tried and convicted of economic sabotage and genocide. They were executed by firing squad on December 25, 1989. And so, at the end of one of our conversations, I wanted to ask Romeo more about what he could remember about Ceausescu's regime. These uh, communist uh, regimes, they always had, I don't know how to translate this, it was called nomenclatura. This would be a top tier of unelected officials, really, um, that had advantages that weren't enjoyed by anyone else in Mm. the society. Some of them were only associated loosely by Mm -hmm. family ties or, you know, whatever. So, So one of the propaganda concepts that was sold to the people, there is a sentence straight out of the Communist Manifesto. To everybody according to their needs, from everybody according to their abilities. In other words, everybody was expected to contribute and everybody would be taken care of. Mm -hmm. So that was the concept of equality. And it removed the incentive of people to do good for themselves, obviously. This leveler was only applied to normal people. The last five years of communism, sometime from like 83, 84, all the way to 89, um, I don't know if you ever heard about this, but there was extreme shortages of basic foods. People would go to a grocery store, which again, government owned Mm -hmm. and government operated, right? A grocery store would open like at 7 or 8 a.m. and you never knew what there would be in stock. So people would go in line at 3 a.m. at night and they would start lining up in a queue hoping they would have some things such as uh, sugar or oil or eggs Mm. in stock. And hoping that, you know, if they come early enough, they would get some. Because mm-hmm. it was never enough. And then they would open at 7, 8 a.m. and they would say, no, we have nothing, go home. And you would come back the next day and mm. the next day. And maybe, maybe you would be able to buy something once a week or once every two weeks. That is how bad it was. This 
top tier of people that I'm talking about, they had their separate stores that you know they had memberships in, and they would go there and they would be able to buy anything they wanted. Mm-hmm. And there was no shortage of products for them. You know, I also have to show you the other side of this because, you know, we we talked about communist regimes and mm-hmm. their uh, the the problem of that system and dictatorships and just the the bads uh, that came with it, right? But there was also good uh, that came out of it, and um, this is mm-hmm. part of that that philosophy that I have that people have to see both, both sides. sides of. On, of an argument, and you have to be exposed to the truth from across the spectrum. Romania under communism developed a lot in the pursuit of that equality. Ceausescu, which ruled the country for about 25 years, he started huge industrialization projects, and he uh, literally took the country from being uh, an agrarian country, like you know, it was agriculture was pretty much everything mm-hmm. that we had, became uh, a powerhouse in the East. And I, I know maybe that doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. uh, or not doesn't mean much to, to someone from the West. But back then, there was uh, the Eastern Bloc and then there was the Western Bloc, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, there was the Iron Curtain. There wasn't that much trade between the East and the West. But between the East countries, you know, members of the Eastern Bloc, there was a lot of trade. And some mm-hmm. countries were better off and others were less well off. So Romania became actually an economic powerhouse in the Eastern Bloc. And this was something that Ceausescu developed single-handedly in, in the sense that he created policies that made that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and huge industrialization project. When he came to power, uh, more than half the country had no electricity, just so you know. Then they developed education. This way, the system was much more equalitarian. Uh, than uh, anything in the West. So if you are a sharp guy or girl and you were interested in bettering yourself and um, you wanted to study, you had no obstacles to doing so. Uh, the SAS system would triage you and they had programs to basically identify uh, people that had uh, abilities and they would be fast-tracked through education and, you know, put under more uh, advanced programs and, and all of that, right? And, and I benefited from that. And even though my father had the political past that he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my, my father had a very bad stigma, uh, you know, on his mm-hmm. <laughs> life, you can say. Uh, it didn't affect me. Not only was university free, but even things like student housing was free. If you wanted to apply yourself, because not, not everybody did, you know, like I said, the, the system didn't really encourage that mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, later in life, because it was uh, very uh, equalitarian like that. But, you know, for kids and for education, it was, I would argue, it was an uh, extraordinary system. Some of our earlier discussion about trust in government I left here. During communism, as people were suffering severe repression and abuses, there was on the contrary a high sense of Romanian pride, nationalism. It struck me that Trumpism was tapping into an American-first nationalist agenda, but also playing as a unifier of discontent to a segment of people that began to use the label patriots but stop short on unifying for things like wearing a mask to protect the spread of COVID-19. 
the aim of this propaganda was to make everyone feel like they had a stake in that society and in that country, and nationalism is a part of that. Mm -hmm. So when you feel that you do have a stake and you're part of a larger construct, it's not just you, right? Mm -hmm. Then you feel more inclined to work for the better good, which is what these societies, mm -hmm. uh, they, 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 what they try to do or what they claim that they wanted to do, right? So there was no economic incentive for people to do that. They cultivated a sense of nationalistic uh, identity and of uh, a sense of belonging to the nation. And that actually helped the regime with their goals to industrialize and develop the country. Cases where people worked on some huge projects, like it was a pride to, to actually mm -hmm. have an opportunity to work on a project right. like that. The next topic strikes close to home. I have family that hold dear the Don't Tread on Me flag. But after seeing it on January 6th and on Rewind in the days after the attack on the Capitol, I have this gut feeling of unease about how some are making meaning. So I asked the question that was on my mind with Romeo. I'm going to sound maybe a bit to the edge here. But when I look at the Don't Tread on Me flags... I almost look at it like it's like flying something leaning to a Nazi flag now because of how it was used. And I know that may really upset people. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Gadsden flag, actually, uh, mm -hmm. because that's where my answer would be. I mean, where, where do we start? We start by not demonizing our political opponents and not painting them with the same or same brush because they're mm -hmm. not all the same. And that certainly applies to, to the Gadsden flag, you know, the don't tread on me. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it is incorrect to take a symbol that is used by whatever, you know, uh, extremist organization and assign it only that meaning. Mm -hmm. Because this flag has been used, uh, you know, by the libertarian movement uh, in the United States, and it has been used even by the American Tea Party movement. Um, so are those extremists too? In our conversation taped after January 6th, Romeo shared his predictions about the future of the Republican Party and the two-party system as an outsider looking in. It looks even more fractured if we compare the divides and support between the personas of Liz Cheney and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I, I truly believe there will be some fracturing uh, of political parties, but not in the right way. For me, a, a good fracturing would be when the parts of these two parties that are reasonable and willing to work together mm -hmm. and ultimately willing to improve society and, you know, America as a whole, uh, they would come together and they would form a third party. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's going to happen. Politics are driven by political gain. At the moment, the political gain, the winds have blown uh, towards the Democratic Party. No Democratic representative you know, or senator in their right mind is going to move away 
from this situation that they have right now where they control the presidency, the House, and the Senate. I do not see them reaching across the aisle in the next four years because there is no incentive for them to do so. On the other hand, what I think Trump is going to splinter the Republican Party mm-hmm. um, into a faction that would be like, you know, it will continue to follow Trumpism mm-hmm. as an ideology, right? Then uh, there will be another part of the Republican Party that will disassociate from, from that movement. That's not going to play to the advantage of the Republican Party, but it is going to play to the advantage of the Democratic Party, thus, thus removing even more of that incentive for change. That mm. is my, my forecast. But I think there's ebbs and pulls in the Democratic Party because even within the party, you have push and pull of old and new between the young talent coming in, the progressive wing. The progressive wing uh, might be able to drive some change, uh, but they will drive it within that party. That is one area where I have to agree with uh, comments by Nancy Pelosi, you know, that she, I think they were taken out of context and misrepresented, but at one point she said you have to push for the change you can achieve, not necessarily the change mm. uh, uh, you'd want to see. So, uh, and that, that, that is the essence yeah. of uh, working, uh, working together. So for that give... Here was a get. Romeo called out propaganda on display in the days just after January 6th. You may recall media invited to air public arrests, present Vice President Pence and leader Nancy Pelosi greeting and showing support in front of a line of soldiers at the Capitol. You may have also heard the public announcement that Nancy Pelosi was going to meet with the Joint Chiefs to ensure measures to protect process and decisions requested by the President in his final days. This may have seemed reasonable, given the unusual and potentially destructive consequences. But zooming out, what did it say to the world? It's not the case right now, but imagine this scenario for a moment. Let's say that America had a powerful enemy. Imagine for a moment that we were 40 years back in the Cold War, mm-hmm. and nuclear missiles pointed to America from the Soviet Union, you know, with thousands yeah. of of warheads, and imagine that they had made, they had made a decision that they were going to attack America, and they were just waiting for the right moment to do so. Mm-hmm. A statement like that could totally trigger that decision mm. from from an enemy that is bent on destructing you. I share this final bite with you from Romeo. It certainly made me uncomfortable hearing it. The label has been polarizing in political rhetoric leading into the elections. It may be a bridge too far, but he was authentic in his alarm you are about to hear. And given our conversation, it may already be amplified somewhere in the echo chambers. Is there anything that just pops out at you now? What what jumps out at me right now is that it's almost like we have started leaving or going towards a fascist state. So uh, a fascist state is one that controls you know, the lives and the minds of their citizens 
not directly through application of um, power. Um, this is the main difference in, in totalitarian systems between communism and fascism. In communism, you do not have free enterprise and you do not have corporations and you have the state that's applying and controlling the lives of everyone directly. But in fascism, you know, like Nazi Germany, you know, Mussolini, Italy, uh, you know, states like that, in fascism what you have, you still have free enterprise, but it's subordinate to the interests of the state and it acts as a conduit for for the state and, you know, for governments to to drive their agendas and, you know, to control ultimately their societies. And so, to unpack that, we talked about what we might be missing. And this is a big if, because you and I don't know this, but if there is evidence that leading up to January 6th, that there was corroboration, then he could be indicted. Are they looking at this as a terrorist act of incitement? And so therefore, this is what we do. Shaming in the public square, public arrests, and, you know, basically removing the platforms. What you said about, you know, possible evidence and the impeachment process Mm -hmm. and potential trial in Senate, all that holds true and we will see how that Mm -hmm. plays out. Big Tech has made a decision to link an unresolved legal question to actions they took proactively. But I wonder, wonder, is there something that where it's a counterterrorism movement? Now, you may look at that as political. You may look at it as the big tech bending. And if they did, then that is the, the definition of the fascist state that I... I uh, said earlier about corporations in a free society do not bend to the will of the state. They bend to the laws. But what about that hard line we are talking about? cannot draw an analogy between a president and a far-right domestic terrorist type of uh, person. Like, that's, I'm, I'm not sure you can use this equivalence. Uh, the, the president of the United States is, is a office and a, a role that has power and has controls. The burden of proof for somebody holding the office of the president, there should be something that is unequivocal, because if not, then you open the door to this type of... uh, More revolution and rebellion. Exactly, a revolution brewing. the impeachment vote. Fellow Americans beat and bloodied our own police. They stormed the Senate floor. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the Vice President. They did this because they'd been fed 
wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth because he was angry he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. There's no question, done, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole, which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. time on Anatomy of Change. We're going to leave free speech and give it space to marinate for a while and move to a new chapter called The Choice. The debate circles human rights, reproductive health and rights from the unborn to girls, women, and LGBTQ. The stories and perspectives on both sides wrestle with topics that will strike the rough edge of debate. Will we find connection of freedom of speech to freedom of the choice. Anatomy of Change is executive produced by Tay Moeller, with post-production, editing, and mixing by James Fleegey. Special thanks to Romeo, TM, and AT. This episode contains an audio clip provided by C-SPAN. The original series music, titled Reborn, was composed by Adrian Berenguer. Additional music featured in this episode by Kadir Demir, The David Roy Collective, Philip Daniel, Rosa, and James Fleegey. Our website, where you can listen to all episodes, music, and artists featured, and find companion content is anatomyofchange.org.